Hey everybody, good morning. Uh, my name is Darren and it's a pleasure to open God's Word with you. I, uh, I am excited to sort of finish up this four-week series we've been in as uh, we've been looking at the big picture. By the way, I should say, if you're a guest with us this morning, we're really thrilled that you're here. And we don't want you to feel like a guest for very long. I'll be around after the service. I personally would love to meet you. Uh, any of our staff, you'll see them with name badges. There's people at the Connections table. We, we just don't want people to come and leave and not be known, right? We want to get to know each other over time. And if you're family here, we're stoked that you're here. But we always can grow in our knowledge of one another too. So the more ways we can be connected, the better. But certainly we're we're glad you're here if you're joining us. And even though we're finishing up a series this morning, I don't think you'll have any trouble sort of catching in with where we're at. So we've been in a, a short series, a four-week series called The Big Picture. And uh, the idea here is to look at the overarching story of the Bible, to get a sense of w- what's the point of the scriptures that they've been revealed to us so that we can understand how, how all the different books and all the different chapters and all the different verses work together because they're not isolated and separate. They're meant to be integrated and they're meant to work towards one overarching point. And wh- the way we've summarized the big story of the Bible is this. At the, at the heart of it, we believe that the story of the scriptures is the story of King Jesus and his kingdom, right? That this is ultimately from the Old Testament to the New, a story that points us to Jesus as the king and creator of the universe and the ways in which he invites us in to that kingdom. That's the story. So no matter whether you're reading in Leviticus or you're reading in Malachi or if you're reading in Acts or if you're reading in 1 Corinthians, no matter what you're reading in some way or another, it's pointing us to the story of Jesus, our King, and his invitation to us to be a part of his kingdom. Now, that's the overarching story, and every time we're looking at the Bible, we want to be thinking about that overarching story. But there are also four movements, and that's how we've broken up our our last four weeks. You'll remember three weeks ago, I taught out of Genesis 1 and 2, and we talked about oneness there. That there was oneness in God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, whole and one. That there was oneness in the man that he created. That he was naked and not ashamed. There was no brokenness. There was none of no envy, no jealousy, no strife. He was alone. God created woman to be with the man. And there was oneness between the two of them. So we see oneness in God. Oneness in the created man. Oneness between man and his fellow man. Oneness between all three of those, right? God and man and woman. And oneness with the creator. There was no strife. There was no pain. There was no brokenness. And there's a picture there that was pointing always to a fulfillment. But in the second week of our study, uh, which, you know, I know, like I did two chapters and then they had to do the whole Old Testament. Boo-hoo, right? Uh, In the second week, we looked at at the, the second movement. And that runs from Genesis 3 all the way until the book of Malachi, right? The end of the Old Testament. And in that second movement, what we see is otherness, right? The fall of man is what it's called sometimes, but sin enters the picture. And with sin comes all kinds of brokenness and strife and jealousy and envy and greed. And because of that, what we see in the Old Testament are repeated attempts to try and find oneness again, but they're relatively unsuccessful. So whether they're under the judges or they're under the kings or they're under the prophets, whether they're under the Levitical law system, no matter what, they never quite accomplish that oneness and they long for it. We see it in the writings all through the Old Testament. They're longing for that oneness again with one another, between one another and God, between God, one another, and creation. And that is then what leads us to the third movement. And last week we looked at the books that run from the first of the Gospels, Matthew, through the end of Revelation with the exception of the two chapters we're looking at this morning. And that movement of the story of King Jesus and his kingdom, that movement is about oneness restored in Christ. 
That in Christ, the fact that the Lord Jesus, who has always been God and is God, came to the earth in the incarnation, took our sin upon himself, died on the cross and shed his blood on our behalf, rose from the dead, and extends to us by his grace resurrection life. He afforded us the opportunity to find oneness again. Although we live in what might be called the now and the not yet, which is a time in which oneness is possible, but it's not necessarily uh, everywhere at the same time, right? Does that make sense? We don't see oneness uh, as the major narrative of our season of history or any of the seasons of history that have gone before us. We see lots of brokenness because while oneness is possible in Christ, it isn't something that everyone has chosen. It's not something that everyone knows. It's not something that everyone has leaned into. And so we live in a moment where there is oneness available and afforded in the death and resurrection of Christ, but we don't experience that oneness regularly. This morning, we will look at the fourth movement in Revelation 21 and 22. And in the fourth movement of the story of King Jesus and his kingdom, what we see is perfect oneness renewed or fulfilled. Sometimes the word restoration gets used, right? In that fourth movement, they'll talk about restoration. I want us to be careful this morning not to use the word restoration because we have so many home improvement programs on TV now that when we think about restoration, what we tend to think of is fixing up something old, right? Taking something that's dilapidated and broken and just sort of fixing it up for a new chapter. That isn't what we see described in Revelation 21 and 22. What we see described in Revelation 21 and 22 is not restoration in that sense, but rather a fulfillment of the oneness that was always God's intention. It's a newness in every scale, right? And so we want to be able to see this big picture because it will help us frame not only the way we read the Bible, it will help us frame how we understand who God is and what he's doing in the history of mankind, and it will help us frame the way we live our lives and interact with other people. We have to see the big picture, right? There, there are consequences if we miss it. Uh, I mentioned in the first week that sometimes we end up missing the forest for the trees. You can get so focused in on little pieces that you miss the overarching story. That's a mistake we don't want to make. I... Um, I took my family on a trip. I was teaching in Montana a few years ago, I think 2016. And I decided to take my family on a little side trip up through North Dakota. It was the only state I'd never been to. So I've been to all 50 states. North Dakota was the last one I needed to cross off my list. Turns out there's not much there. So we just kind of cut the corners so I could say, hey, I've been there. Then we went into South Dakota to go and see Mount Rushmore and Deadwood and some of those things. And uh, when we got to Mount Rushmore, I'm with my family. It was a beautiful day. But um, we're trying to get a picture, right? We're trying to get a family picture, trying to take a photo. And that's actually really hard if you want everybody to be in it. It's kind of sort of hard to get your arm out far enough to do a selfie or whatever. And there was this really nice older lady who came up and she says, I see you struggling to get a photo. Would you like me to take a family photo for you? And I was like, that would be amazing. Like, uh, would you do mind? Like here, I handed her my camera, which is like a little Sony. And I said, you focus with this button and you take the photo with this next one. And she goes, no problem, no problem. So she gets this all set. She says, okay, scoot over here this way. And she takes the picture and I thank her and we're done. Uh, I didn't actually see the photo until I got back to our hotel room and then I was editing so I could transfer some things to Instagram. And when I opened up the photo, it looks like this. Now, here's the thing. I got four kids, y'all. I got four kids, right? Uh, there, there is a, uh, there's a, you can see the top of a head there in the bottom of the shot. That's my youngest son, Will. And uh, I mean, this is a great shot of Mount Rushmore. I'm looking pretty good. I got, those are good glasses, whatever. But like, 
this is not a great, this is not the big picture. You know what I'm saying? And something is missed if we don't see the whole. We don't see the whole and something is lacking, right? We could focus in on any one of the individual parts of that and it isn't enough, right? I'm, I'm, I don't want to seem like I'm not grateful for that lady's help. But maybe a little I'm not grateful. I don't know. So big picture, right? Oneness to otherness, to oneness in Christ, to perfect oneness restored. Perfect oneness fulfilled, maybe is a better way to say that. Let's look at this, Revelation 21, 1 through 5. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I'll remind you from some of our earlier studies that in, uh, in, in the Hebrew mind, the idea of the sea represented chaos and darkness and evil. So when it says the sea is no more, what it's pointing to is the fact that there is no more chaos and darkness and evil, Right? I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Not only did Jesus declare the newness that is coming, but he wanted it written down so that we would read it, so that we would have it for ourselves. That'll, that'll come back into significance in a minute. I want you to see here in this opening section of 21, of this final chapter in the story of King Jesus and his kingdom, that what we see is newness. You can use the word restoration if you want, but what we're not talking about is God fixing up the old earth and fixing up the old heaven. Those things are gone. And what we've got is something new, right? A new heaven and a new earth that come down. Sometimes when we think about... um, Sometimes when we think about eternity, right? When we think about the byproduct of our faith, which is eternal life, sometimes we think about being snatched away from here and taken to an away place, somewhere in outer space or far away, someplace distant. That is not the picture that's revealed to the final chapter of human history in the scriptures. It's not someplace far away. It's not someplace uh, in a fantasy land. It's not someplace in outer space. It's the restoration and renewal of all things here right? And as you read on in 21, we won't do it this morning, but I encourage you to read it. There are some really interesting details about what that will look like in its dimensions and its scope and the materials that are used to build that heavenly city. But here's the caution. You're welcome to read it. And in fact, you should read it. But the problem for us sometimes is that we can get bogged down in our best guesses about what's here in the text. So maybe you read about gold city that is so pure gold that it's transparent. And then you can get so bogged down with trying to think through gold that is transparent and still makes a decent surface for paving streets. And you've missed the point of what's being said, right? You can get bogged down in coming up with theories and guesses about how it is that the gate is made out of a single pearl. And how does that open? And it says it's open all the time. So why is there even a gate? I'm not saying you shouldn't have guesses. I'm not saying you can't theorize about it. I'm not saying it's, it's not interesting to sort of wonder about some of these prophetic passages. But what I'm saying is that if you get bogged down in that, you have missed the forest for the trees. Because the emphasis of Revelation 21 and 22 is everything's new. And not only is everything new, but God is with us. 
He's with us. You'll note in 21 and 22 that there is no temple, right? For the Hebrew people, again, they had to go to a place to interact with God. For us who have found oneness in Christ, the Holy Spirit lives within us. But there is a day coming when we will be the temple and there will be no need for a physical structure anymore, right? And you can spend a lot of time in theories and guesswork or you can look at the emphasis that's here. It's worth noting that this plan for perfect wholeness, perfect oneness forever isn't an afterthought. It's not something that God decided at the end. He didn't go, ah, let's make a little course correct and kind of start fresh with oneness. It was always his plan. Ephesians chapter one, verse seven says, in him, we have redemption through his blood. That's Jesus. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So understand the mystery of God's perfect will revealed in Christ was always The unification of all things in heaven and earth. That was always where it was headed, right? It isn't restoration. It's fulfillment of the story. When you look at the book of Revelation, you'll find, depending on how you count them, you can find between, uh, again, how you tabulate, between 250 and 1,000 references to other parts of the Bible, particularly the Old Testament. Because what we see revealed in Revelation is the fulfillment of the story. It's the completion of things that God had been pointing to since the beginning of his walking with man, right? All things united. Oneness, again, God with us. God making his dwelling place with us. There is no night anymore. There is no sun or moon because God himself is the light, It says in this passage that the gates are always open by day and there is no night, which is telling us that that the gates are always open. There's a place that all the nations will come into. So what we see here is a beautiful picture of the oneness we all have been longing for, that we sometimes in this stage of the story get a taste of in Christ. Sometimes we get a taste of it in our community. Sometimes we get a taste of it in our families as we're walking in alignment with the character and heart of Christ. But it's intermittent at best because we live in the now and not yet. But there is a day coming when this oneness will be everything. It's not a faraway place, but it's here in oneness with God, in oneness with one another. There is no brokenness. There's no tears. There's no death. There's no crying. There's no pain. The gates are never shut. All the nations are there. It's a beautiful picture. And I don't know about you, but, but when I read it, it, it sort of captures all the things I'm hungry for, right? I'm hungry for a place with no more tears and no more pain. I'm hungry for a place with no more strife and brokenness, no more jealousy and envy and greed. I'm hungry for this place where we are united one with another and we're united one with another and God. We're united in and of ourselves with the creation that it's all been renewed, that it's all been fulfilled. I remember uh, driving home from church when my son Hank was little... And I used to do this quiz on the way home where I'd ask my kids what they learned in Sunday school. I don't know if you do that, but it's just, you know, me checking up on the Sunday school teachers. And uh, so we're driving home and I say to my son, Hank, I'm like, hey, what'd you learn in class today? And he goes, dad, it was awesome. Today in church, we learned about heaven and dad, there's going to be a gold street. And I'm like, oh, that's pretty cool. Gold street. That sounds pretty awesome. He goes, dad, that's not the best part because the best part is in heaven, you can't feel any pain. Which means we're going to be able to punch each other in the face as hard as we want and never feel it, right? 
So like in my third grader's mind, he's imagining like a golden octagon, I think, right? It's just like street fighting. There's no night. So it's just going on all day. People punching each other. No pain. It's a glorious vision, right? I don't know exactly how you envision it, but I'm not thinking about conflict. I'm thinking about the removal of conflict. And in fact, in the text, let's, let's look even just a little bit further than what we've already looked at. Look at verses six and following. He said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. I don't want you to miss this. If you're taking notes this morning, I would want you to circle or underline those words without payment. If you have a question about the grace of God or the availability of the spring of the water of life, it could not be more simple that the water of life is there and it's available to all who are thirsty for it at no cost, right? It is the grace of God that saves us. He says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. When we read Revelation, we start to read about the lake of fire. We start to read about the second death. We start to read about the consequence for those who have chosen idolatry or deceit or division. Those who have chosen this brokenness over the springs of living water. It starts to make us feel a little bit uneasy, right? Start to think about the lake of fire and it should sort of make you uh, anxious maybe a little. But here's what I want to point out and I don't want you to miss it. Both in Revelation 21 and 22... What it says is that the spring of living water is available at no cost to anyone who's thirsty for it. Yet there will be some, and there have been some throughout the course of human history who've been thirsty for the wrong things. They're not thirsty for the river of life that comes from the Lord Jesus. They're thirsty to satisfy themselves. They're thirsty to satisfy their own jealousy or their own envy. They're thirst for pleasure and sexual immorality. They're thirst for control and power and things like witchcraft. Throughout history, there have been human beings who have, who have heard or understood that the waters of living, uh, the rivers of living water were available at no cost in Christ. And they've said, no, thanks. I, I want what I want. And the problem is that in this perfect oneness forever, there is no place for jealousy or envy or bitterness. There is no place for sexual immorality or witchcraft. Brokenness, there, there's no space for that in this new creation. And so those people are not there. The gates are open, but those who have chosen not to drink the water of, uh, of life have no place in this because, because it simply can't exist in this environment, right? Now, that does then come with a warning, and there are fair warnings in both 21 and 22 to pay attention to, to whether or not we're thirsty for the right things, to maybe stop and ask yourself even today, are you hungry for Jesus? King Jesus and his kingdom story, are you hungry for this oneness or is there something about otherness still that is appetizing to you? Is there something about serving yourself? Is there something about satisfying your own appetites that draws you? Because the reality is that in the coming kingdom, right, there is no place for idolatry. There is no place for deceit. There is no place for any of these things. And so it is a, a little troubling, right? But it is a community. I want you to see the nations all coming in. I think sometimes when we think about uh, this perfect oneness forever, I think sometimes when we think about eternity, maybe in the same way that Hank thinks about a, a golden octagon, 
I think for some of us, when we picture eternity, we picture uh, a mansion in the countryside somewhere, right? It's like on a ranch, and there's like miles and miles of grassland between you and your nearest neighbor. And the only reason I think this is because for most Americans, that's kind of the ideal, right? We work our whole lives in order to save up a bunch of money so that you can move out to somewhere where you'll be by yourself, and you'll be, you know, you kind of have your ranch somewhere. Well, I hate to burst your bubble, but in eternity, what we clearly see in Revelation 21 and 22, when, when, when perfect oneness is restored, it's not restored to a bunch of segregation. It's not restored to a bunch of isolation. It's restored to a city. We're going to spend eternity in a city. That's tight confines. No matter how you read uh, the, the prophetic word about the dimensions of the city, you try and cram in all the people through the course of history who've been thirsty for the waters of, of living water, right? And, and that's going to be a pretty tight confine, right? You're not going to be able to be isolated. You're not going to be able to... We, we are meant for community. We're meant for oneness with one another and with God. That's why it's depicted here as a city. However you interpret that... Understand that what God was trying to point us to is that we were built for community, for togetherness, right? That we were built to be a body. And so what we see here is a city, not a ranch. There is no temple. God is here with us. And there's grace until the end. If you look at Revelation chapter 22, verse 17, it says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price, right? Both the Holy Spirit and the bride, that's us, are beckoning. It's invitational to the end. The grace of God is available to the very end. Even the very last verse of the entirety of the Bible, Revelation twenty two twenty one says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all, right? Grace is at the center point, centerpiece of the story of King Jesus and his kingdom. But we see that he will perfectly restore oneness forever. So what, is, what does this do? What, like what, what difference does it make to know this, right? To see the picture that's, that, that's detailed here and then to sort of think it through. I, I want to remind you, and I've said this before, so forgive the redundancy for some of you. But prophecy in the Bible, prophecy that comes from God, is never given for the sake of information. Does that make sense? There is no prophetic utterance in the Old Testament or the New that is simply to educate, right? God doesn't do prophecy for the sake of an increase of knowledge or an increase of information. Prophecy is never for information. It's always for provocation, right? Prophecy is always meant to be a catalyst for action and movement. Old Testament, New Testament, prophecy is meant to move you. So when you understand the way the story of King Jesus and his kingdom finishes, right? That we go from oneness to otherness, to oneness in Christ, to perfect oneness forever, right? What, what does that do? Well, I want to give you just a couple of things to think about this morning and sort of process about how you respond to knowing the end of the story. The first thing for me when I think about knowing the end of the story is that it provokes in me a sense of adoration and worship. Adoration and worship. Because, listen, you guys, God didn't have to show us any of this, right? He didn't have to clue us in. He didn't have to include us. He didn't have to tell us the way the story's going to end. He didn't have to necessarily point that to us. He does that because he cares about us. Because we're his sons and his daughters. He knows that the life we live in is hard. That we're in a season of the now and not yet where oneness is possible in Christ, but it's intermittent at best, right? In, in the lives in which we live. And so God, in his grace and in his kindness, he says, hey, I just want to let you know, this whole thing is moving to a conclusion that will be beautiful. And that was always my intention. 
The first thing that is provoked in me when I think about Revelation 21 and 22, the end of the story, is a sense of worship. A sense of gratitude to God for even sharing this with us at all. For being the kind of God who talks to his people and informs them. The second thing that it stirs in me is a sense of trust, right? That if I know the way the story ends, I can have trust, or you might call it faith, or you might call it hope, in knowing that no matter what things look like today, God is still in control. That there is an outcome that is coming that God has said will occur, and it will occur, right? I have a confident expectation that transforms the landscape of my life. How often are you in conversations with people around the kitchen table or people in your workplace or people in your neighborhood that are stressed out about the the condition of things? How often have you heard Christians, people in the name of Christ, driven by fear of the other or fear of the stranger or fear of what they don't understand or fear of somebody who thinks differently than them because they're so worried that things are just going to fall apart, that that, that everything is going to come off the wheels? Can I tell you, knowing the way the end of the story is written, it it takes away that fear. It takes away that anxiety, right? We may live through a difficult season. This is a difficult season in which to be a human being. That's just a fact. But the reality is that God is in control and that his story is still being written and we have a peace in it. So, So that hope in what God has promised, it brings me peace. P E A C E, right? It brings me peace. And here's the thing we've talked about this before too. The hope in what God has promised, it doesn't just bring me peace that helps me sleep at night. It doesn't just bring me peace that allows me to be more gracious towards my neighbor, more kind towards people who disagree with me, more generous to those who might want to attack me or whatever. That, that peace isn't just for me to hold on to. That fruit of the Spirit, that fruit of knowing what God has promised is a peace that then can radiate out of me to others. And if there's anything your neighbors need more than, more than anything else right now, the people in, in the apartments across the street, the people in the houses around us, this world needs the body of Christ to have radiant peace. And the only way for us to radiate that peace into the lives of other people is to confidently believe what God has told us he will do. So it provokes worship and adoration. It provokes peace, but that comes from a trust, right? A trust and a hope in what he has said. The third thing that it provokes or that I would want it to provoke in us and does provoke in me is a sense of renewed followership, right? To recognize that I'm on a journey, right? That I'm part of this story. I'm not the, I'm not the center of the story. I'm not the main character. I'm not Luke Skywalker or whatever. I'm, just a, I'm a character in the King Jesus story. But I get to enjoy my part of that by, by following, right? By doing my best to understand even the things that are esoteric, even the things that are difficult, taking a guess and t- discussing with people and trying to understand how to navigate some of these things that are complicated. I get to enjoy the process of following God in the midst of some of the, uh, the nuance and the intricacy because I understand the big picture so I can turn loose of having to be right about everything, right? So I can follow Jesus. Well, what did Jesus do? Well, Jesus, it's interesting I think we think about Jesus as giving a bunch of different messages, and he did. But each one of the gospel writers, in one place or another, will summarize the preaching ministry of Jesus with one sentence. Did you know that? Matthew, I think, does it the best. Matthew 4, 17 summarizes the, the whole of the teaching of Christ, and it summarizes it this way. In Matthew four seventeen, it says, From that time, Jesus began to preach, Repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand, or the kingdom of God is available. The kingdom of God is, is present, right? What was the message of Jesus? Yeah, he gave a lot of different sermons and said a lot of different things, but what was his message as recorded by his gospel writers? 
It was a message of immigration. When he says repent there, there's a piece of it. When we think about repent, we do think about like turning away from our crimes or our sins. And that is a part of it. But repentance at the end of the day is just a turning, plain and simple. It's you were living for the kingdom of self or the kingdom of idolatry or the kingdom of power or pleasure. You were living for the kingdom of needing to be right or needing to be in control. And you've turned away from that. And you've immigrated to the kingdom of God. Jesus preached the availability of the kingdom of God now. In the third phase. In the phase of oneness and the availability of that in Christ. We have the ability to see the kingdom of God break in. It's why in the Sermon on the Mount, in, uh, in, in the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, 6, 10. He says, um, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus believed that it was possible for that perfect oneness that will, that will be universal eventually to break into our experience now, to be ushered in now. He prayed that that would occur. He invited us to turn from our own selfish ways and to immigrate into the kingdom of God now to see the kingdom of God brought. That's why, again, if you've been around here and you've listened to me, I I will say that I think the philosophy of church ministry is almost entirely contained in the idea of being an embassy of the future in a local city. This particular church happens to be in Fullerton, surrounded by a couple of other cities. But what is the church if not an embassy? An embassy of a future kingdom in which the will of God will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But we can give people a sample, taste of that now. We can give people as his ambassadors and as his embassy, we can give people an experience and an understanding of the kingdom of God that is broken in to the kingdom of this world, right? That we become ambassadors of that. In Hebrews, uh, Hebrews chapter 13, verses 14 and 15 say, Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Oh, sorry, 14. I've got to back it up so you get the context. It says, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God, right? You'll hear people sometimes talk about being not of this world, or maybe you've seen the bumper stickers or whatever. It's not my intention to be critical of that. But what can happen sometimes, you start to think of yourself not as this world, and what that means to you maybe is that you're somehow removed, right? That you're somehow isolated, that you've got your own little sort of in-group, and that, you know, the rest of the world is falling apart and it's none of your business. That's the opposite of what Jesus calls us to, right? What Jesus calls us to is to be his ambassadors, to carry on his work, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to reveal him in this age and to see the kingdom broken in until it is fully revealed. We get to be emissaries of that. And in fact, one one last thing I'll point you to here. Well, two, two things. In Revelation 21, 24, look at what it says here. It's talking about the light of God in this new city. The glory of God. And then it says in verse 24, By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day. There will be no night there, and they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. So don't miss the idea of all nations represented in this perfect kingdom. But the the, the thing I really want you to hone in on a second is that it appears that the kings, the people of this earth, have the ability to bring something in. That they're able to bring something in to this perfect oneness forever, right? How does that work? How do they bring something in? What it's suggesting there, what it's suggesting is that it is possible in our conformity to the image of Christ, both in who we are and what we do, 
to manifest the glory of God in this age in such a way that that work will not need to be renewed or restored in the coming age. Does that make sense? That I'm not going to have to be totally recreated in the coming age because in some ways I have conformed to the kindness and the grace and the goodness and the love of God. That's not going to have to be reformed in me. That will last into the next age. In the ways in which I reveal Christ in in the way I serve, in the way I sacrifice, in the way I give, and I'm, I'm not talking about me, but us, when we live a kingdom life and when we do kingdom work, What it's suggesting here is that some of that work will not be burned away. That some of that work will not be destroyed with the old heaven and the old earth, but that we will carry that glory, the work and the character that we have in this age that brings glory to God will not have to be redone. It will will carry in. So what does that mean? Well, it means right now there's the ability for you to, to invest in things that matter. And I'm not talking about stocks and bonds. I'm talking about... I'm talking about a different kind of investment, an investment in the glory of God and the good of others. That brings me to my final point, which I know I I pointed at a second ago. I think understanding the end provokes worship and adoration. It provokes trust and hope. It provokes a followership, a renewed followership. And then I think it, it should provoke in us love, right? Love. That in the places we go, we have the opportunity to bring healing that people might not experience any other way. We have the opportunity to, to bring in kindness. We have the opportunity to bring in grace and generosity and reconciliation. That we have the opportunity to bring in all of these things that have value in the kingdom of God ultimately. But you guys, they have value in the kingdom of God right here and now. And the investment that we make in the revelation of Christ and the glory of God, the goodness of others, that stuff will be brought in, I believe into this perfect oneness that will be restored. God gives us a glimpse in this sort of last movement of the fact that that he will make all things new. Let that draw you to worship. Let it draw you to trust, a radiant peace that can radiate out of that confident expectation. Let it renew your followership of Jesus who himself said, come live in the kingdom, right? God's will be done on earth as it is in the kingdom, right? Jesus believed that was possible. And Revelation chapter 21 and 22 show us that it is possible for us to do kingdom work today that will last. Kingdom work that will last. Our lives now can be characterized and focused on seeing God's kingdom come in little ways before it is ultimately fulfilled. We're going, as we leave this series, we're going into a series uh, next week that'll be another four weeks. And that series is called Who We Are. And it's, it's really just a conversation about what we're all about here at this church. What is it that motivates us? What, what are we about? What does it mean to be a part of the family here? If you're a person who's been a part of the family at Fullerton Free for a long time, it'll be a great refresher for all of us. And if you're new, it's a perfect time to come and go, hey, what is this church all about? What are its priorities? What are its values? What's it aiming at? The next four weeks will be an exploration of who we are as a church and, and who we believe that God has called the church to be. And it flows right out of this. It flows right out of a mindset that says oneness is what we were built for and oneness is what's in our future. And right now we have the opportunity to see that made manifest in the ways in which we reveal Christ in our interactions with others. Would you pray with me? God, I pray um, as always that, that we wouldn't just hear this in the same way that prophecy is not just for information. God, help us not just to, to know what the story of the Bible is, not just to know the story of God, your interaction with humans. Help us not just to know the story of King Jesus and his kingdom, but God, would you help us to 
to engage in that story, to bring that story to bear in our lives and in our businesses and in our families and in our interactions with others. God, will you help us to be an embassy of the future? Will you help us to be your ambassadors? And will you help us to be focused on making investments in your kingdom today that will carry over into the coming age? And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.